has yet to see a unified church a church that's not bickering amongst itself in a lot of ways it's like we're all hamburger joints and you know I got the double double for those of you who know In-N-Out Burger you know what I'm talking about and you got a Big Mac and you got a Whopper and you got a Baconator but in the end of the day it's all just burger joints the church thinks like modern capital business we say look oh well so so there, there's a, a, a McDonald's there so we're going to put a Burger King right across the street because you know, they do it this way. We do it this way. It's a little better. We have a special sauce that we have. Many families, even friendships, even nations have been divided over petty things, insignificant things. The church should not participate in divisions when they're not backed up by the word. As we'll find out in this teaching, God's people can do amazing things, but could do even more as a united body of believers in Christ. Now here's Pastor Daniel in the book of Proverbs chapter 16 verse 18 with his continuing study entitled The Tower of Babel. Jesus is I always think of Proverbs 16:18. Most people say pride goes before a fall. You guys ever heard that verse? If you actually read Proverbs 16:18, it actually doesn't say that. It says pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. So it's even worse. Pride goes before destruction. See, the reality is this. Each one of us and all of humanity from all eras, in all nationalities, in all age ranges, everybody either glorifies themselves or they glorify God. You can't glorify yourself by glorifying God. He is either the object of your affections or we are our own objects of affection. And I, I like that about the Bible. There's no gray area. You're either in the spirit or you're in the flesh. You're either seeking and glorifying God or you're glorifying yourself. As it said, and I've said it before, you're either a saint or you ain't. And that's what the Bible teaches. And that's, people struggle with that because we want to live in a day and age where people don't want to make those distinctions. But Jesus said, you either gather with me or you scatter. You're either for him or against him. And, and Jesus makes a very clear distinction. That's why he says, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Because he's saying, look, you're in one of two camps. That's the way it is. Now, what's interesting is what's going on here in a lot of ways is that they, notice why they're making a name for themselves in verse 4. Lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. They didn't want to be scattered. And really what they were doing is they were rebelling against God's blessing to Abraham in Genesis 9-1, which says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's desire was for them to branch out into all that he created. And they're just saying, we're going to stay together. We're going to build this tower. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to protect ourselves by being together. When God's will was that they be scattered. So really the issue here is rebellion. It's rebellion. Now, 
They have this plan. And then in verse 5, it says, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one and they have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, do you see what's going on here? God is looking upon them and he's saying, look at what they're doing. And I hope you take notice of this because I think this is important for us to realize. The Lord says, the people are one, their language is one, and this is what they begin to do. Notice this. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Now, uh, Pastor Jason Ritchie always gives me a hard time because that tells us something very powerful about what happens when humanity is united. God says, because they're of one language, because they're of one speech, because they're of one mind, they can accomplish anything. And God thwarts their ability to accomplish anything because it was all about rebellion. Now, imagine how much the Bible speaks about unity within the body of Christ. Imagine what could happen with a group of people who are unified in the spirit of Jesus for God's glory. What can be accomplished? If you notice, and we all have to be careful of this, and it's really big in evangelicalism today because everyone's trying to make you, this is what you should believe and this is who you should be against. Christian-wise. I don't know. I was talking to someone and they were like, oh, you know, Saddleback, Rick Warren. I'm like, man, Rick Warren. Man, people are are getting saved reading the purpose-driven life. Before his own master, he stands or falls. And, you know, and if so, I know some of you, I'm even saying his name, like, Pastor Daniel's for Rick Warren. Look, I'm for anybody who's promoting Jesus. And I, listen, We need to be careful not to let petty things, things that we don't even understand. Like this whole, it's funny, this whole Christlam thing. If you know anything about Rick Warren, people are saying, oh, he believes that Christianity and Islam are the same. Just read his his discussions about this. The things where he supposedly said it, nobody ever listened to what he actually said. And people freak out. Because you know what the thing is? Jesus said a house divided against itself can't stand. And the Satan will do anything, anything to divide the church. Over, over some theory about how and when Jesus is going to come back? Listen, we all believe Jesus is going to come back. Are we going to really divide the church over the details of that? About how people get saved? In the end of the day, we just know that people need to get saved so they believe in Jesus. It's an election season. We better not be dividing the church over political affiliation. Give me a break, folks. We're talking about the Son of God who died on the cross and rose again. And that a unified church agreeing to disagree about different things that aren't essential, but we agree on Jesus. And because we agree on Jesus, a unified church focused on Jesus, allowing diversity in these non-essential things and saying, look, we agree on Jesus. A unified church can do anything. Nothing will hold us back. But it's amazing how much infighting. Like, I guarantee I'll go home today, I'll get emails about what I just said. And I just want to say, case in point, while you're sending me an email, you could be praying for your neighbor. You could be going, share, writing an email to your neighbor who needs to know you. You could be sending them scripture, <laughs> loving on them in the name of Jesus. Instead, we're on blogs and all these things. Like, Ooh, you, no. See, that's amazing. God said, 
the people there in Babel, they could have done anything, but they were in rebellion. Almost every place in the Bible talks about a mature church. It talks about a unified church. And not just a, we need to be unified here in Crossroads. We need to be unified with the bride of Christ at large. Sure, we do things different. They do things different. But the one thing that everybody does the same is that we're saved by the blood of Jesus. And our hope is in him. And we need, in this day and age, if not in any other time in history, we need that. The world has yet to see a unified church. A church that's not bickering amongst itself. In a lot of ways, it's like we're all hamburger joints. And, you know, I got the double-double. For those of you who know In-N-Out Burger, you know what I'm talking about. And you got a Big Mac, and you got a Whopper, and you got a Baconator. But in the end of the day, it's all just burger joints. The church thinks like modern capital business. We say, look, oh, well, so, so there, there's a, a, a McDonald's there, so we're going to put a Burger King right across the street because, you know, they do it this way. We do it this way. It's a little better. We have a special sauce that we have. And, we all, and it's like we think about it as market share. No, we're talking about the body of Christ. And if people do it different than us, praise the Lord. We do it different from them. But listen, we're brothers and sisters. We're family, all because of Jesus. I love that this is a powerful thing about humanity. If we could be unified in the spirit. And that's why you look at the early church in Acts chapter 2. They're of one mind. They're of one accord. They were unified. And God was doing powerful things. Can you imagine what God could do in Clark County if all the churches who called on the name of Jesus in simplicity and believed God's word linked up arms to serve this community? Can you imagine the impact it could have to the ends of the earth? Would to God that it would be so. Would to God that it would be so. But these people here, they are in rebellion. So God says, look, we're going to confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And then in verse 8, the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. It's interesting that what we learn here is that in the middle of building this tower, all of a sudden God confused their languages. All the languages, or a whole bunch of them, just appeared. And it's interesting, if you read the writings of modern linguists, there's a lot of discussion about that all languages descend from one language, or how did they happen, and there's a lot of scholarly debate about it. For me, it's like, hey, God confused their language. Now, I think what we need to realize here is this. In rebellion, in rebellion... God confused their language. What happened in Acts chapter 2 when God poured out his spirit? God brought the languages back together. Did you ever notice that? Think about it. In Acts chapter 2, when they were speaking in tongues, now they weren't speaking in kind of our modern kind of charismatic conception of the prayer language, like the I should have bought a Hyundai, that whole thing. And I, I'm not knocking that, man. I believe in the gifts. And if you have the gift of tongues, then praise the Lord. We should all seek all the gifts. We want the Holy Spirit to be God in our lives, whatever that looks like. But their language in Acts 2, everybody heard what they were saying in their own heart language. There was people from all these nations and these Galileans who didn't know these languages all of a sudden were speaking and people were perceiving what they were saying and they were hearing them glorify God in their own heart language. So it's interesting that at the Tower of Babel, God confused their language. On the day of Pentecost, God brought the languages back together. 
Don't think that that's by chance because it was God's will that the people be unified in Christ. And that's where that unity comes from. So God confused their languages. He scattered them across all of the earth. Now, we have two genealogies. First, we have the descendants of Shem. Look what it says in verse 10. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot a parksad. Two years after the flood, after he begot a parksad, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Our fox had lived 35 years and begot Selah. After he begot Selah, our fox had lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Salah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Salah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. Now, don't forget, I told you last week that Eber is where we get the word Hebrew from. Right there. The descendants of Eber. That's where the word comes from. In verse 17, after he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Ru. After he begot Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and begot Serug. After he begot Serug, Ru lived 207 years, begot sons and daughters. Serug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, if you notice this genealogy here in Genesis chapter 11, it's laid out a lot like the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. Now, and this is why, if you notice, this genealogy and the genealogy in Genesis 5 have similarities to the way that they're articulated. And what's fascinating about that is that the genealogies in Genesis 10 and the second genealogy here are very similar. Now, the reason I bring this up is if you've gone, if you've studied about the Bible at all in a liberal arts university, they're always going to tell you that the Old Testament, and specifically the first five books, were written by multiple authors. They, they call this the source theory. And one of the reasons they do that is because of things like the different ways that genealogies are articulated. And they would say, see, these genealogies are articulated this way by saying this person, we got this person, and they lived this long, and they did this as opposed to just a list of names. And so this is where it comes from. Now, I wanted to bring this up because I think it's important that as Christians that we be educated about the theories that people have. Now, the question will be, do I believe in multiple sources for the book, first five books of the Bible? And I would say the answer is, yes, I believe that there are multiple sources. I totally do. And the reason I believe that is because it would seem that there is, this wasn't written out as just a straight story. There was some putting together that happened. Now, either way, some of you might say, he believes that. Does he not believe the Bible's inspired? And the answer is, of course I believe it's inspired. The Bible teaches, the Bible teaches that the books of the Bible are inspired, written by people, but inspired. We don't believe the Bible fell out of heaven. We believe that God inspired people. And so I really believe that when you look at these books, like you can't believe Moses wrote it all because that means that Moses wrote that he was the most humble man who ever lived and he wrote about his own death and burial. That's a tough sell, isn't it? But don't think for one second that if there was multiple authors who were compiled into these five books, that that does anything 
to take away from inerrancy, infallibility, or inspiration. Because we all believe the New Testament, we have four Gospels. Are they all inspired? Yeah. Were they written by four different people? Yeah. Was there a problem with that? No. And what's interesting, if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three synoptic Gospels, you will find that oftentimes they share exact information. And scholars would tell us that Mark's gospel was there first. Luke's gospel even says that he went and compiled the information and he put an account forward. So I bring this all out because sometimes if you hold to a dogmatic Moses wrote the first five books and only Moses, you're actually holding a position that it doesn't ever say that Moses wrote all five books, only the headers say, you know, the first book of Moses, Genesis. That's not even in the text. That was actually added by the King James translators. So we don't want to hold to something because we think it's important when it really isn't important. The only problem would be, I would say, is if we found an error. And if you found an error, then you have a problem. But I'll tell you, I've been studying the Bible in earnest for 15 years. And everything that looked like an error actually isn't an error if you really search, search it out. And it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. So I wanted to bring that out because we have these genealogies and they're, and they're articulated different ways. And a lot of people would say, scholars would say, well, this genealogy came from, and then they'd start making up who the source author was. And I don't like that because it doesn't say who wrote it. This person wrote it. It's like, no, where'd you get that from? But it's interesting the way these genealogies are laid out. But notice what happens. This genealogy brings us from Shem, the end of verse 26, to Abraham or Abram. Do you see how that works? So we, we have Shem, Ham, and Japheth and Noah coming off the ark. We find out that Shem is going to be blessed. And now we see Shem brings us from Shem to Abram, who's the next character, which I would say in a lot of places is exactly how the genealogy works. It's meant to link up characters in the story, in the narrative. We're, we were just looking at Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now we're moving to Abraham. And now we see, look, Abraham is of that lineage. That's how it works. Now, look at verse 27. Because Abraham or Abram here, because he's the next main character, we get more information. Look what it says in verse 27. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begot Lot. We're going to learn about Lot in a couple weeks, right? You guys know Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah. He was Abram's nephew. See, this is why this is all in here. In verse 28, and Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldees. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Issach. But Sarah was barren. She had no children. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So what this does is this gives us everything we need right here. It gives everything we need to go forward. What does it teach us? One, Abraham had some brothers. Abraham's brother Haran's son was Lot, and Lot's father Haran died. We're going to find that when Abraham, when Abram goes, he's going to take Lot with him. We learn, it's fascinating, 
Out of all of Abram's brother's wives, we learn everything about them except for Sarah. We know nothing about Sarah's family. I think that's peculiar. I tried to come up with a good reason why they didn't give us any information about her, but they just don't. It's weird. She's the major player. None of these other women, uh, Abram's brother's wives, none of them play into the story at all. But we don't get any information about Sarah's genealogy, and I don't really know why. But it does say in verse 30 that Sarai was barren. She had no child. And it's amazing how often barrenness for a woman plays into the biblical story. We're going to be seeing a lot of this. And it's interesting, and and I want to close with this. Because oftentimes we think that God is for us when we get the things that we want. Right? We feel God's blessings when the things that we're desiring come to us. But it's interesting that oftentimes in the Bible, God uses the exact opposite of what they want. And I think what that teaches us is this. It's so easy to think, I'm blessed if God does this, or I am forsaken if God doesn't do this. And I think God wants to give us a whole new way to view the world. And I think that way is the way Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. When we can come to God with the trust of a child and say, God, whatever your will is for my life, I would like this. But God, I'm not living my life. I want to live the life that you've given me. Because most often, if you're really honest with yourself, if I'm honest with myself, the things that hurt me the most are the things I think I deserve that God hasn't given me. I could spend my whole life being bummed that I'm not 7'3", so I can play center in the NBA. And that would be real fun. I mean, I remember when Shaquille O'Neal, the center, I used to just, I would just have dreams about me dunking on Shaq. That would just be so cool. You know, and I'm like, I'm not even tall enough to be a guard in the NBA. It's just terrible. I'm not even tall enough to be a water boy in the NBA. Unless I'm going to be like squirting kneecaps. Like, here you go. Be refreshed. You know? And I could spend my whole life or all my days just being bummed that I'm just not 7'3". And God said, Daniel, I packed as much goodness in 5'7 as I can get in there. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. There might be room for some more, I think. Do you guys get what I'm saying here? For so many of us, the big lesson every day is to say, God, I would like this, but Lord, what's your will for my life? And not focusing on what we're lacking, but saying, God, thank you for what you've given me. Sarah was barren. So much of what's going to go on in the life of Abram is going to be rooted in that right there. The whole geopolitical problem between Muslims and Israelis right now, it all has its root, right? Right in that verse that Sarah was barren and she had no children. We're going to see what goes on with Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac. It's good. It's wild. But all because Sarah was barren. Jesus is real. Genealogies are not all articulated in the same way. And in this message, Pastor Daniel tried to explain why it's important for us to understand why that is. 
we should know the different theories people have about the Bible and how Scripture really is consistent and infallible. We heard the beginning mentions of the patriarchs and considered how to approach God not only in our time of need, but while we are rejoicing. Thanks, Josh. Pastor Daniel would like to invite you to join him each day on Facebook for his two-minute messages. Pastor Daniel shares from his heart and God's Word in a way that will impact your life. It's the perfect way to inject a little bit of Jesus into your routine. Log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com and follow the links to the two-minute messages. Now, here's Josh with a preview of what Pastor Daniel will be covering in the next edition of Jesus Is Real Radio. Place a marker in your Bibles and join us next time here on Jesus Is Real Radio as we continue through the Word of God. We hope you found Pastor Daniel's series, Origins, to be informative, revealing, hopeful, and edifying. The book, of Genesis, the book of Genesis is a beautiful beginning, a story of God's love for us that continues through to today. Just as Adam was created in his image, so are we. And that should bring us hope and peace. We've run out of time today, but we do encourage you to tune in next time as Pastor Daniel will begin sharing a brand new series. That's next time on Jesus Is Real Radio.